All right. Welcome to the Inclusion Solution Live podcast from the Winters Group. Um, on this season of our podcast, we'll be taking a deeper intentional dive into the chapters of the Winters Group's new book, Racial Justice at Work, Practical Solutions for Systemic Change. I'm Gabby Gonzalez, marketing and PR strategist here at the Winters Group. And I'm thrilled to be here with our uh, co-hosting with our founder and CEO, Mary Frances Winters. Hey, Gabby, it's good to be with you again today. And hey, Celeste, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to, to join us today on this podcast. Yeah, we um, wrote the book, um, Racial Justice at Work, Practical Solutions for Systemic Change, because we hear so often from our, our clients that we really don't know what to do. How do we actually make this practical? And particularly um, when we talk about racial justice. And so this book is designed um, to do that and to look at systems that go beyond HR. But today we are going to be talking about how those systems, uh, how the HR systems actually play uh, a key role. And we have an expert in that area today. And again, I am just so grateful, uh, Celeste uh, Warren, that you and we were going to introduce you in just a moment. But I just wanted to share my gratitude that you um, just you said yes when I asked you to, to be a part of our podcast. So thank you so much. Love it. So yeah, I mean, sounds like you're checking in very grateful. <laughs> yes, I'm checking in today grateful. That's great. And, and how about you, Gabby? Oh, yes, me as well. Me as well. Always excited. And I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about my chapter today. So it's recruiting, hiring, and other HR practices for racial justice. Um, and the reason why we brought in Celeste today. So we have Celeste Warren, Vice President of Merck's Global Diversity and Inclusion Center of Excellence. I'm going to pivot to you, Mary Frances, uh, to take it from there. I know you two are, have been friends for quite a while. We have known each other for quite a while. And, and um, Merck does happen to be one of our um, wonderful um, clients. Uh, we've done um, work over the years um, with with uh, Celeste and the Center of Excellence, um, and very, very, um, they're doing a great job, and that's why we ask you to be a part of it. So, how are you checking in with us today, Celeste? I'm doing, doing well. I am so honored to be a part of your podcast, Mary Frances. Um, this is a long time coming for you. You have the books, you have the the organization where you reach out through all your. Um, all of your channels, but this podcast, I'm really excited to be a part of. Well, thank you so much. I'm really glad. So why don't you tell us um, a little bit more about you, um, how you got into this work, why you're in this work, what inspires you about this work, what some of the challenges of this work might be, but just tell us more about you so our audience can hear a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Well, sure. I, um, as, as Gabby said, I lead Merck's Global Diversity and Inclusion Center of Excellence. I've been doing this now this specific job for nine years. This is my ninth year going into it and um, been at Merck for this is my 26th year. Hmm. And um, I, this is just something diversity, equity, and inclusion is something that I was literally I say this all the time I was born with. Um, my father was the first black teacher and first black principal in Western Pennsylvania and and also that uh, right near the Ohio line. So Youngstown, Ohio, et cetera. And, so I had a first, um, a front row seat to being able to see the challenges that he faced being the only and the first and how he um, overcame some of them and how he dealt with them. And, you know, our dinner table was constantly, the conversation was what was going on? How was his day? What did he have to face? And so hearing from him directly with those challenges, it just, it was ingrained in me. It was a part of my childhood. Um, and then growing up at high school and in college 
and being able to have more adult type conversations with my father um, before he passed away. I was able to just kind of understand the the challenges and then how to really look at it from a perspective of, I call it sort of like the Jackie Robinson thinking, mm-hmm. where as the first, you all eyes are on you and everyone's waiting for you to do something wrong, to get in trouble, to do whatever, you know, whatever. They're waiting for you to make a mistake. And that pressure was on him for many, many years until the second black teacher came in or the third, et cetera. And, and you know, it's not unlike that when we think about the roles that we play in, in, in corporate America, when you are, when all eyes are on you, they're just looking to see, you know, is she going to make a mistake? Is she going to do this? And so that's a lot of pressure. And so um, we know that. And that's why, you know, the chapter, when I read your the chapter around HR practices and what the, the important role that we have to do within human resources and the people practices, policies and procedures, it was really, really, it was a good chapter. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, and, and and you're right, they're practical solutions. Practical. Mm-hmm. I couldn't put it down after that. I was like, okay, let's go to the next one. <laughs> so very, very well written. And 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 it's very, very important. The points that you bring up, it's very, very important. So it, for me, it's just been ingrained. Whatever job I had, even before formally being the head of diversity and inclusion for this organization, it's always been a part of how I did my job, how I looked at any organization I was supporting as a human resources professional, um, whether this company or previous companies, um, it's just been a part of me and, and, and a desire to make sure that um, I'm speaking for the voices of, of the employees who are underrepresented, underserved, and, and, and making sure that I'm able to put things in play that are gonna enable a much more equitable workplace. So that's kind of what what gets me going. And yeah, there are lots of times where you want to come home and kick the dog, and, and and it's just you know you have those frustrating days. And and these days, you know, it's in the headlines. So we can talk more about that later on. But that's kind of what gets me going. Oh, that's that's really great. And you know, you speak speak to your lived experiences, right? And I know Gabby, for you in writing that chapter, right? Some of the reason why you wrote that chapter is because of your lived experience. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about why you wrote that, why you wanted to write that chapter? Absolutely. So I was connecting a lot to what you were saying, Celeste, as far as like your lived experience um, and seeing your dad being, you know, the first and mm-hmm. or the only. Um, this reminds me of, you know, I do share some experiences in the book. I'll make this a little more exclusive, talk a little bit more about a, a different experience from earlier in my career. Um, as a as a young magazine editor at Shape Magazine, I was the only um, you know editor of color on staff as far as like an, being an articles editor, and um, you know at the time it was very eye opening for me because I, I this is right after I moved to Los Angeles from Columbus, Ohio, um, oh. and really realizing like how much more diverse you know it really is out there, um, and um, just realizing growing up you know we. I, I read Shape Magazine. My brother was a big, um, you know, fitness enthusiast, was very into Muscle and Fitness Magazine, which is like a, a sister publication. And um, so it was like, for me at the time, oh, I'm like, oh, cool. This is a magazine I read growing up. But then realizing, you know, having access to all the archives, I'm like, there really has not been a lot of diversity here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being able to be in a position where I could do something about that, where I could say, hey, you know, can we feature a different, you know, photo here or, um, you know, just covering different stories. Um, 
that was like sort of my first time really being able to feel like I could make a difference in what was, you know, being put out there. Um, and, you know, as a result, we were able to start featuring more, you know, women of color in the magazine. Um, and we also, um, uh, we hired our first uh, black columnist, which I was very proud of, um, which, you know, at the time I was like, how is this the first time that we've hired a black columnist? You know, um, so again, very eye opening and, and the difference it can be made by being able to be in a position where you can speak up and, and speak out. Um, so then, you know, that really inspired, you know, my work going into diversity, equity, inclusion, um, and also just, you know, it was a, like the basis for all of my experiences going into writing this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, um, and, and when just hearing the, both of you talk about the importance of HR to have those sensibilities and to have, so it's not just about the policies, right? It's, it's really about um, understanding sometimes what's underneath those policies and how those policies might impact people, you know, um, uh, differently. So, so Celeste, when you hear the term racial justice, from your perspective, what, what does that mean? From my perspective, you know, it used to be going all the way back to 1964 and the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King and, and, and all of the memories from from seeing the historical aspect of that. But it, when you fast forward to 2023 today, racial justice is about, for me, um, trying to right the inequities or right the ship, if you will, the inequities that exist in, in corporate America, in the public sector, in education and institutions. It's trying to right the ship. And there's a lot of years, decades, centuries of inequities that have been institutionalized into a lot of different systems and, and organizations and, and institutions, et cetera, that we have to really do a lot of work. And it's not going to happen through osmosis. And, and a lot of people don't, they truly don't understand. And sometimes it can be overwhelming, understanding that when our forefathers wrote the constitution, the, the, the slavery was legal. Right. And so there were so many things that were going on that are just ingrained into our laws. Again, the public sector, the private sector, and, and we have to sort of unpack all of that to really get at how do we write this ship? How do we, how do we create equity? So, so we can make sure that um, all of the isms, the racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, all of those different isms that exist that are we are just kind of woven into the fabric of a lot of these institutions, um, that we have to pull that back and look at it, examine it, and then tear it out. Mm -hmm. um, and it starts with uh, the the you, know, you have to. It, it start, it's got to be a multi-pronged approach. You, mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I view it. It's not an easy answer. This didn't happen yesterday. It, 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 it's been long, long times of practices and procedures and policies and laws that we have to really get after. Um, and it's, and it's, it's hard work. It's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> you know, anybody, all of us will tell people that, you know, they come up to us and they say, oh, I'm so passionate about diversity and inclusion. What can I do? And I want to do this and I want to do that. And then when you start really having those, those conversations, with them, they're, they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. 
<laughs> exactly. I mean, it's such hard work. And I always you feel yeah. like, you know, I'm constantly having to prove myself. I'm mm -hmm. constantly having to back up what I see with, with statistics and data. And uh, I'm just curious if you've, um, you know, if that's been the case for you too. Yeah. You know, I think at least within our organization, I think, it, you know, Ken laying the groundwork, Ken Frazier laying the groundwork and helping people to see beyond the business case for diversity um, with, within our organization. I think we've, we, I hope that conversations, in, at least in most of the Fortune 500 organizations, that we've, we've sort of gone beyond that and really looking at, we know that there's a business case for it. We know that it creates a competitive advantage. Now, how do we get in there and do it? And, you know, we saw in 2020, you know, in May, in the murder of George Floyd, that we saw the statements of solidarity all over social media. And that was great because you didn't see that in the past. You didn't see it for Trayvon Martin. You didn't see it for Michael Brown. You didn't see, you know, you didn't even see it for Breonna Taylor until until after George Floyd. But, um, you know, that's great. We love the statements of solidarity, but it's what are you doing to the, what are the actions that you're taking in place that are taking place within your respective organizations to get after these issues? Um, and, and now that you've been sort of uh, awakened to different inequities, if that's the case, then what are you doing to get at it and fight for what needs to happen within your organization? And I, you know, I was having conversations with our executive team um, last year and, and just this week around, um, we can give you the skills and capabilities, but it, it, it is a large part of it is the courage of your convictions. Mm -hmm. A large part of it is prioritization. A large part of it is putting your money where your mouth is. And, mm -hmm. and you know, when I was growing up, um, I can't remember, uh, I heard a pastor speak and he was saying that if you really want to know where someone's loyalties lie, look in your checkbook and see what the, what the, what, who are you writing checks to? Mm -hmm. You know, is it, is it, um, you know, he used to say back in the day, Sears and J.C. Penney's and <laughs> or is it your church? Is it you know, nonprofit organizations? Is it you know, what are you doing to help the world be a better place? And 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 I think that's true for today with corporations. Where where are you spending your resources? And that's a big, big part. Of it. You know, how much spend do you have with with diverse suppliers, you know, around the globe, as an example? And and how are you looking at in our space? getting diversity through clinical trials? What are your senior levels of the organization look like from a representation standpoint? There's so many different things to incorporate it in throughout your people, your culture, your business, and the things that you're doing to make the world a better place that that's all of the things that need to happen. And a lot of people, they think that it's, they just scrape the top and you can't do that. That's, that's just, you know, that's just window dressing. You have to really get at what's underneath all of that and really attack it. And so that's going to be my next question for you in terms of what are you all doing uh, to get underneath and to, to attack it. But before I do that, I just want to, for our audience, because some people may not know who Ken Frazier is. Yeah, Ken was our uh, chief executive officer, our CEO of Merck, the first CEO of a pharmaceutical, major pharmaceutical company in the, in the world. And he was our first CEO. black, first black, first black, yes, mm -hmm. black CEO, and one of few in the Fortune 500, and and uh, just made a lot of headway. He was our uh, CEO for 11 years, and then he moved on after he retired 
and turned the helm over to Rob Davis, our current CEO. He then was the executive chair of our board. And since then, uh, the end of this past year, he's now even retired from that. So, um, uh, but yeah, we still we have, still have contact with them through other other areas and ventures. But but um, yeah, he he really um, did some fabulous things, not just within Merck, but also as a leader externally. Um, when uh, you know, many of you might know, he he left President then President Tr Trump's Manufacturing Council. After the uh, events in Charlotte, uh, Charlottesville, that was a sort of a uh, come to Jesus moment because there, people were looking at that and saying, "Wow, you know, this—he's really stood stood up for something and, and against, you know, the leader of the the free free country, <laughs> the biggest free country in the world." So, so you know, these are—he he laid the groundwork and really provided a lot of uh, air coverage for me. Because what we're doing is it's organizational change. You know, if you don't understand how to methodically do organizational change, then you're going to have a hard time in these types of roles. You have to look at the organization. You have to do your assessment, understand where the pain points are, understand where the issues are, and really go after it with either uh, enterprise-wide programs and programs and initiatives, interventions, solutions to get after the problem areas within within an organization. And, and people don't necessarily, as you guys know, they don't necessarily want to be uh, characterized as not understanding racial inequities and racial injustice. And you, you're talking about things that they heard at the dinner table growing up from mom and dad and auntie and grandpa and grandma that you know they as a child that's what they heard and so you know it's a it's a tightrope that we walk on to try to change beliefs and understanding and and uh and help them to understand where we are now how those inequities and those racial injustices how they manifest themselves in the organization and what needs to happen in order for us to really make change um, it, it is a tightrope that we walk on in trying to do this, but it, it, it has to be done. Do you have an example of a success mm -hmm. in, in this area? What would you give us? Uh, what would you give the, the listeners as something that you know practical that they can actually go and and do that you all have done at Merck that's moved the needle? Some of the things that we've done um, most recently it, with the um, with the start of 110, which Ken Frazier was one of the founders of that, but 110 is an organization that was started um, two years ago. And it's basically um, um, really leading the way in having uh, a million black individuals having jobs, sustaining jobs um, within corporate America. And it's basically to create those jobs and get, ten, get uh, 1 million black African-Americans hired into these roles by uh, in, in the next 10 years. And that's basically kind of what the what the um, what the organization and, and this their mission is. And, and Ken and uh, uh, Jenny Romanetti from IBM were the ones that sort of and Ken Chinock from uh, American Express, the previous CEO there, were the ones that um, that started this idea and then 
vision and then organization. And Maurice Jones is the CEO now. We did uh, an inventory, first of all, before 110, we did an inventory of the language that's used in job postings and really uh, took it through a tool to really see, are we using inclusive language? Is is the language and the, the, the communications and how it's written, is it already um, inequitable, you know, just it, in, inequitable? And, and is, it, is it causing unnecessary barriers to women and persons of color and other underrepresented groups to even wanting to be, want to post for the job, both internally and externally? Um, and so there was that piece of it. And then um, when we when we uh, join 110, really taking a look at our roles and saying, is a degree, a four-year degree, really necessary? And we know with all of the data and the research that that becomes a, a, a barrier, an obstacle to, especially um, in the Black and Latino and Hispanic community, of being a, an arbitrary barrier for for certain roles. And so we did an inventory of roles around um, uh, from you know our sales roles our some of our in our research organization or shared certainly our shared services some of our human resources roles and really took a look at them and said okay really do we need it it's really about the skills and the capabilities and the experiences that people and the candidates have so so these are the things that that you know just that's just one example of some of the things that that you can do is really look at your recruiting uh practices another thing is you know going back decades but having diverse candidate slates uh you'd think wow you can't hire diversity if you don't <laughs> have <laughs> slates that are diverse um, and what we started doing is also not just looking at the end number but looking all the way through the candidate selection process process and looking at the data. So from resume to um, phone screen, to interview, to hire, what does it look like? The data uh, from a representation standpoint and really tracking that as well. And really, cause you really get at where the pain points are mm -hmm. um, bottlenecks in the candidate process. So those are just a couple of things just, just recently that that we that we have put into play, and, and I tell you, the skills first has really made a difference in uh, our talent um, processes because it has opened the doors um, to a, a a wealth of talent that previously we had been shutting out just arbitrarily. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you have had such great success with removing barriers. I'm curious if you had to experience any, or if you experienced any resistance along the way. Oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's going to be resistance, and and you know, I, I use that analogy of that that illustration where everybody's seen it, where um, the individuals are on on each of them are standing on one rock and they're looking over the fence, trying to look over the fence. The person on the right still can't see over the fence. The person in the middle barely. The person on the left can. And then you go to the second illustration where you've given them the person on the right three rocks the person in the middle two rocks the person on the left is still has the one rock and what is happening now is the work that we're doing in racial justice and in, in, in creating equity is causing disruption in the organization 
because now that person that was standing on one rock in the first illustration and one rock on the in the in the middle illustration, they're looking to their right and they're saying, "Well, how come they have three rocks and they have two rocks and I just have one?" And they don't understand that that fence is there. And in and in the analogy that I've used, you know, that fence represents those isms, racism, sexism, xenophobia, homophobia. It represents the institutionalized isms that exist. They've always been able to see over it with that one rock, and they don't understand what that looked like in the eyes of the person to the right, to the persons to the right. So um, having that discussion with them to say, well, we have to put these in place because they're asking questions like, well, why do we have employee resource groups and affinity groups? Why do we need mm -hmm. them? Why do we have to have diverse sourcing strategies? Why do we have a woman's leadership program? They're asking these questions. And thanks to from 2016 and beyond, they feel like they can they can elevate their voice and say that, right? There's nothing wrong with me questioning DEI. There's nothing wrong with me doing that. And so we know what happened in November of 2016. And so that has has kind of opened this gateway. And so they don't where they were sort of, you know, covert with it. They just stick their head out like you know, like a whack-a-mole, and they basically stick their head <laughs> up and they say, "Well, why are you doing this and why are you doing that?" And some of my colleagues have said, you know, you know, that used to be a career limiting move for you to, to go against, you know, at least, you know, publicly. Things. And now it's not. And, and, and I look at it as, OK, now I understand I don't have to dig through and try to figure out what you're thinking. If you say it, then I know. And let's have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Uh, and, and you have a book that you can hand them now, too. So, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it, it, it can be a difficult conversation, but it's a conversation that we need to have. And so I, you know, I, I have to explain to them that the fence is there. Those isms exist. You've always been able to see over the fence because you've lived this wonderful life of privilege. And but the person to the right and the person in the middle, they haven't been able to see the fence. And this is what this has looked like for them. And, and helping them to understand that. And then not just an understanding, but you know they, they get it intellectually, but I need them to be active allies. I need them to get on the boat, get in the boat, grab an oar and row with us as we're trying to get up, up the stream. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing, that disruption. And so it, it manifests itself in so many different ways. Oh, well, you know, the question that we always get, you know, when we say, when our recruiters, when they say, um, well, we want to make sure that we're giving you a diverse candidate slate. And then the hiring manager, the next thing out of their mouth is, well, I want to make sure that I have quality, quality candidates. And so when I get involved in that conversation, um, I just basically say, okay, well, wait a minute. Why did you feel the need to even say that? And I said, you know, close your eyes. I said, I want you to visualize for me what the best candidate looks like. What do they look like? Describe them to me. Because when I close my eyes and I do it, it's a woman of color. What do you what, what does it look like for you? And you know, just to be just to challenge their thinking and, and 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 help them to understand that the reason why you said that, let's cut to the chase, is because you believe that diverse talent is inferior, that they don't have the skills, they don't have the capabilities, they don't have the intelligence. That's why you felt the need to say that. And, and, uh, and you have to change your mindset. And so, you know, these are the types of conversations that we have to have in order to do that because they, uh, you know, these, these folks are not being quiet anymore. And you see it in 
the public sector, look what DeSantis is doing in Florida, you know, in Texas, you know, it, it's just the, 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 the governor in, in Virginia, it's just, it, it's, it's sad. And it is so sad that, that this, um, that this is going on in 2023. Um, you know, trying to stop AP African American studies. It's just mm. it is unbelievable that this is where we are this day and age. And and so, you know, the fight is real, the struggle is real. And if we don't speak up and we don't elevate our voices, um, there's going to be some tragedies going to be happening in the in the United States. And and mm-hmm. other countries are looking at us. Mm-hmm. And, and saying, okay, look what's going on. Look, you know, they're looking at us and they're and and we don't want the same atrocities to be happening across the globe. Right. You know, this is why we wanted to have you on, um, Celeste, because we know that you work for an organization where even you being on this podcast and saying what you said today, there would be other people from other organizations who wouldn't even be allowed to, you know, allowed to do that. So to be able to 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 um, you know, so poignantly and eloquently, you know, speak to what the issues are and what you're doing in the organizations. And, you know, to get at the root cause, it does take, it does, you know, to get under those roots, that's why I'm doing this, under those roots, <laughs> it really, it really does take that examination and peeling back that onion and doing that reverse engineering and looking at what is in this system, you know, that is causing this outcome. And so thank you so much for sharing, um, you know, what you, some of the things that you're doing at Merck to, you know, to do that. And they're so fortunate to have you as um, uh, a leader there um, to be able to uh, impact other leaders who may not see the world the same way. I love your analogies and your metaphors. And I think that's those stories and those metaphors really help people as well. So we know that this work is um, challenging and exhausting and fatiguing. I wrote that book too, right? Black fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you do? What, what do you do to refill your cup? What do you do um, to manage and to, um, you know, just deal with, um, as you mentioned, these immense challenges we find ourselves having today? Well, first thing is I'm a woman of faith, so that is really important for me. The second thing is sometimes I just have to turn it off. Um, you know, I'll be scrolling on LinkedIn or other social, you know, Twitter or something, and and I'll and and I just have to sometimes turn it off, and and uh, and and sort of just my guilty pr- pleasure is I watch murder mysteries on TV, <laughs> and I and I literally, you know, I, I say, you know what, I can't do this. Sometimes I can't even watch the news, um, and I just go, I turn on Netflix or or something, and I just I I, I totally sort of disengage for a few hours. Um, that's, you know, uh, I, I can't do it for a long period of time because, you know, because the, the battle is, uh, is raging, but, um, that's my sort of, uh, that's, that's kind of what I do. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm finding that this issue, uh, you know, in, in the church, I just recently spoke to a combination of churches across different denominations around social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of churches are have these committees that, uh, around mm-hmm. social justice in mm-hmm. their churches, and so I just uh, Monday evening, uh, Monday Tuesday evening, last week, um, spoke to a combination of different churches around social justice and talking about it, and just did a Q and A. So this isn't something that's just in corporate America. I've talked with universities. I was at Carnegie Mellon this past weekend, my alma mater, um, talking to not not the the liberal arts school. 
but the the uh, Tepper School of Business because they're understanding the importance in creating a diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment, and they're integrating it into their 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 studies. And it's not just about accounting and economics and statistics and, and all of that. But if you truly want to be a successful leader in corporate America, you have to understand the importance of inclusion and equity in the environment and how that plays in into uh, into the organization. So, you know, it's it is something that is permeating across different industries, different areas, different sectors. And we just can't, you can't shut it off, you, you know, and, and, you know, I just, I'm, I, and maybe I'm just getting too old, but I'm fearful of the future. You know, I, I, I have a son who's 19 in college, a daughter who's 21 in college, and I don't want them to face some of the things that I've faced as it, all of us have faced, you know, Gabby, you talked about it. Mary, I know you and I have talked about it. I don't want them to face that. And so I'm trying to get them active in politics and making sure that they vote. Um, I'm trying to get them to not make the same mistakes that I made when I was their age. I didn't care about this and I didn't care about, oh, you know, I don't think I voted until I was in my mid twenties. Um, and so, you know, my, my son is, as soon as he turned 18, he registered to vote um, through, through the school. And my daughter is, is, uh, is very, very, you know, active and, and very, very poignant about how she feels about certain things and inequities. And, and so, you know, this is, this generation, I'm hoping, I'm praying that they are, they keep on raising their voices and not, not putting up with things. And absolutely doing what you can, when you can. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to wait until you're 30, 40, 50 years old to be a leader. These guys, you know, they're stepping out in their teens in high school and stepping out and and speaking up on things and we need them to continue to do that and not lose that fire because you know you know let's pray that some of these folks they they you know they'll they'll leave and leave politics and and mm -hmm. not be in those positions where they're making these laws and these decisions based on erroneous and erroneous information and belief oh we have to continue this work guys mm -hmm. all the generations we all have to do our part so thank you for that. Absolutely. And keep writing <laughs> books. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. We're spreading, spreading those ideas out there. Um, but yes, yeah, so thank you, Celeste, for having us uh, or for being with us. Um, and thank you to the listeners for being with us. Um, Mary Frances, are you going to take us out? <laughs> I will take us out, Celeste. Oh, my gosh. Um, this has been so amazing. Oh, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, you put it down. I mean, you you gave it. It just gave us so much you know, to think about and you, you know, went beyond just your job because it, because it is, it's the society, right? It's our kids. It's our, it's our legacies. It's our grand, you know, the, 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 our grandkids and, and everybody who is impacted by where this world is going. And, you know, you're not only working in your organization, but you're working in the churches and you're working in, you know, and um, going back to your alma mater and, you know, and so I do hope, and you shared with us some of the things that you do, um, you know, for self-care. Um, and I want to remind our listeners as well that because anybody who's listening to this, right, they're with us, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're listening to this, you're watching this, um, please do take good care of yourselves um, as well, because um, we are, um, we're in culture wars right now, and it is uh, extremely burdensome, uh, difficult. There's a lot of stress and strain 
Um, so while we're doing, while we're fighting the good fight, um, let's also make sure that we take care of ourselves. And part of just taking care of ourselves um, can be to, to like reach out to somebody else who's like-minded and, and you all just, you know, sort of be with each other and just um, allow each other to, um, to just, um, to just be and to just share. Um, so, you know, com being compassionate with other people um, and taking care of each other. You know, I think we've got to take care of ourselves, but we have to take care of each other. And Celeste, you have been so kind over the years um, to me and my fledgling um, company. So I want to uh, thank you for being, you know, part of, uh, part of my group, uh, my inner circle of people that I know that I can count on uh, for support. So we really appreciate you. Um, thank you for all that you're doing in the world and um, hope to talk with you again soon. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And I can't wait to hear future podcasts as well and to read the rest of the book. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Until next time, continue to reimagine racial justice at work.